0: Hi,
1: this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose
0: McGowan. Right here ahead.
1: Tyler. The Tribe Quest. Fred Armisen.
0: Fritz Paul.
1: Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're
0: Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today, we've got an unlikely pairing between two performers who share a home state, but it would seem at first glance not too much else. Though that's just first glance. Britt Daniel of Spoon and Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top. Now the genesis of this conversation was actually a conversation that Britt Daniel made around the time the band announced its new album, Lucifer on the Sofa, about the song The Hardest Cut. He simply said that he'd been listening to a lot of ZZ Top in the years leading up to the album's recording. And while the song is certainly no tribute to ZZ Top, you can hear the snarl and bite coming through in its tones and its lyrics. Check out a little bit of The Hardest Cut. You took off
2: in the jet But before you did you got your hair combed right yeah the neighborhood watch those a score and then knocking at your door let them knock some more
0: that's a great song from a great new album and it's album number 10 for Spook who have had an incredibly strong run over the past almost 3 decades Lucifer on the Sofa is out this week, and it stands among their best, catchy, considered, and a bit more raw than their other recent records. Maybe that's because they recorded it back in Brit's home state, which, of course, is where the legendary ZZ Top was born as well. Billy Gibbons formed the band with Dusty Hill and Frank Beard way back in 1969, and the original trio rocked consistently for five decades until Hill's death in 2021. The blues-inspired rock band gained traction in the 70s with songs like La Grange and Tush, then took off in the 80s as they became superstars of the early MTV era with sharp-dressed man and legs. They were shoe-ins for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course, and not even Hill's death could stop them. His guitar tech and friend Elwood Francis stepped in, and ZZ Top will play shows with Cheap Trick this April. All the dates, naturally, are at ZZtop.com. Daniel and Gibbons talk a lot about what they have in common, which is the state of Texas, and specifically its myriad Mexican restaurants. Daniel asks about the legendary photo inside ZZ Top's classic 1973 album Trace Hombres, And Gibbons gets a chance to talk about some of his contemporaries and friends, including Rocky Erickson of the 13th Floor Elevators, and Bo Diddley, with whom he collaborated on a guitar design, among other things. Enjoy.
1: Good to meet you, Billy. Fame on this side. We've been all over the place in the last six weeks, and uh, we're finally... Finally catching up. The band is taking uh, a little 60 day hiatus before we get back to it. The good news, we lit the fuse back in July and steady work without a single cancellation. Every night was sold out. Uh, just a, an amazing uh, stroke of, of good fortune on that note. Amazing. I think the next outing includes a uh, cheap trick wants to open uh, some dates with us up in Canada. And, uh, As you know, the gates open and the gates close and the gates open.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, and we almost got a chance to play together, but that New Year's Eve show got canceled. Yeah. I was uh,
1: really looking forward to that. Yeah. My goodness.
2: So many people were coming down with COVID at that moment. We just, we didn't have a show, you know, but the Jungle Show gigs went all right. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I still haven't gotten to see that. The Jungle
1: Show. What, what What an interesting outing. Getting to uh, see my old pals, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, Mike Flanagan, Sue Foley. She's tearing yeah. the sounds off of her guitar and Chris Layton on drums. It's a good gathering. Yeah, that's awesome. So you were born in Houston, right? Yeah. And you live there now? I keep a spot there. Somebody asked me recently, where do you hang your hat? And I said, it keeps changing towns. It's called a rolling tour bus. <laughs> well, that's cool. But we still got the crib out in Los Angeles, uh, Still got the key to the house in Las Vegas. And with this latest twist, we actually landed a place in Nashville, Tennessee. Interesting, interesting community to say. Places blowing up. Did you ever live in Austin? Yeah, for a brief time uh, on and off, starting in oh the mid-70s, uh, I was drawn to Austin. The uh, fabulous Thunderbirds had just put their outfit together and they were playing on Monday nights at a rather famous place called the Rome Inn, which unfortunately I was informed this morning burned to the ground last night, which is a Oh, big that's v- where
2: Texas French bread? That became Texas French bread?
1: Yes, Texas French yeah. bread. Yeah.
2: Oh, I didn't know that that used to be a venue.
1: Yeah, back in the 70s, uh, all through the 80s. What an interesting place. Uh, a lot of the local Austinites are or uh, scratching their head, going, "Gee whiz, that was so many fond memories of the place." Uh, Stevie Ray got married in the upstairs. and the oh wow! In fact, I wrote uh, I wrote a song called "Low Down in the Street," which chronicled the scene that unfolded on these fateful Monday nights when the T-Birds were holding court.
2: I got to Austin in '89, but I have no idea. I mean, what was Austin like in the '70s? Well, Austin. Austin, uh, being the capital of Texas, it, it drew
1: students, lawyers, cowboys, vagrants—you uh, name it. Everybody was there, and it seems like the '70s allowed this uh, explosive uh, collision of all these disparate entities. These these uh, were some great times. In fact, there's a, there's a really great book called "The uh, Unexpected Rise of Redneck Rock," and uh, okay you had cowboys on one side of the room looking at the hippies on the other side of the room. And they were, they were kind of uh, wondering what's next, but uh, it
2: made for for an interesting, uh, I I use that word collision. (laughs)
0: Even
2: when I got there, it still kind of felt like a college town. And now it sure does not. It's not a college town. It's an industry.
1: Yeah. I believe when Dell computers uh, brought the billionaires uh, into the fray, It seemed like uh, the explosive nature of expansion took over. There was a time when uh, the state capitol was unencumbered visually. There was nothing to block the view from any direction. And now you're lucky to see it from downtown. (laughs) Yeah, you can see it up Congress, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Surrounded by skyscrapers now. I like to refer it as the uh, inside of the donut. Uh, There's that part (laughs) Doesn't seem to want to change much, which is a great thing. still a great community. Right. And uh, to stand by and watch week to week the flux of what you used to think you knew uh, gets overtaken by uh, road construction, making a new avenue. And uh, all of a sudden you find yourself in the small town of Austin. You're you're lost.
2: (laughs) There's parts of Austin, especially downtown, just if you dropped me there, I just would not know where I was.
1: Yeah, it's really changed a lot. I was talking with uh, Jimmy Vaughn, and uh, he said, well, thank goodness, he said, my lovely sweetheart, Robin, she uh, she volunteered to squire me about the town. He said, uh, I came in on my own, and what used to be, uh, I could do it blindfolded,
2: he said, I got lost within three minutes. <laughs> I grew up in Temple, Texas, and you know it was a s- small town with a small town radio station, and at the end of my time in Temple, we started getting a station from Austin, but mostly I was cut off from that. I was, you know, taking my cues from, uh, I would wait for a show called 120 Minutes on MTV on Sunday nights that played alternative music. And I would hear about, you know, British music from these British music magazines I could get at the bookstore in the mall. But when I started making music, you know, in retrospect, I don't think it was really about Texas music because there weren't gigs being played in Temple. And I was cut off from off. I, it was just, I took my cues from elsewhere. I don't feel like I got influenced by Texas till till later on, but I get the sensation that Texas always played a big part in your musical education. Yeah, yeah right. Temple,
1: Texas, it reminds me of so many of the outlying communities that are basically kind of in the outlands. And it's remarkable that uh, MTV came along to it, it kind of uh, lifted the lid on so much stuff, uh, I'm sure right. you can relate. With your musical background in mind, uh, there's no question that MTV played uh, quite a big part of, gosh, one's musical backgrounding, and I suppose that's fair to say it was the w- real awakening globally for so many spots that uh, previously had just been a kind of a closed society, not not really having the luxury of any kind of global impact. But that's in the rear view mirror, but uh, we live in <laughs> we live in this new global community where seemingly everything is within one's reach today. It's different. De- yeah, definitely. Just reach in your pocket, tap on a few numbers, and uh, you're anywhere you want to be. My good friend, Van Wilkes, who's been a longtime resident of uh, Austin, and he came from Brownwood, Texas. And uh, as you enter Brownwood, you have to pass through another small uh, community called Early Texas, and it says uh, there's a sign on the bridge as you approach Brownwood. It says, "Entering Brownwood, leaving early." <laughs>
2: <laughs> Classic. And I think I think a lot of a lot of small town folks were ready to leave early. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to ask you about whose idea was it to put that insane photo of um, the Mexican meal in the gatefold of tres Hombre's? That that um, boy. There was uh, a. Uh,
1: mystery member of ZZ Top in the form of the great art renderings from the late Bill Narum. and uh, we had wrapped up the recordings for Trace Ombres in 1973 and it was kind of uh, a great awakening for the band it contained uh, the our, one of our favorite songs which is still played today the uh, Lagrange right it was the first uh, top 10 uh, Chart maker for the band. And Mr. narum said, Look, he said, I've got the uh, front cover, I've got the back. He said, The record label is asking to do a fold out, a, a gate fold
2: right. offering. Even though it's a single record, they just wanted that.
1: Yeah. He, he said, Got any ideas? And we were actually hanging out at the great Mexican restaurant down in Houston, Leo's Mexican restaurant. And uh tiptoed into the kitchen and I said, Leo, I said, can you make a big uh, larapin spread of just about anything and everything? And he <laughs> ran, and next thing you know, it was laid out on the table. And um, it was actually so much. We uh, we had it packed up for takeaway and uh, went down the street to visit our uh, photography buddy, uh, Mr. Galen Scott. And Galen uh, was rubbing his hands together. He said, gee whiz, he said, let's get this photograph session over quickly he said it's still warm enough and and i'm hungry <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like it was your idea yeah we put it together in about i don't know it it was uh, it came together rather quickly and if you'll notice there's there's some really interesting elements that we were able to squeeze into the photo frame In the background is a radio with the dial lit up and it was of course tuned into the uh, far right end of the AM dial uh, to pick up uh, XERF, the Great Border Blaster radio station. There's a beer bottle from uh, the old Howard Hughes day, Southern Select beer. And behind the Mexican food was a calendar showcasing the great female Mexican revolutionary, La Adelita. So you get mm. all <laughs> you got all these elements crammed into
2: the frame. It's such a great image. Yeah, I just love it. I take it Leo's doesn't exist anymore?
1: Yeah. uh, The only thing left is the neon sign, and our good friend Mr. Jim Jard rescued it from the graveyard, and uh, he actually had it restored. And he's got a rather impressive warehouse full of his hot rod cars and all kinds of Texas memorabilia, but uh, it really comes to life when he ignites the neon sign, Leo's Mexican Restaurant. Right. Right. Which also brings up, I was having an exchange with Jim Jard and uh, was in regard to that neon sign. I said, Jim, I said, uh, next time we come through, I said, you know, you've got to light up the Leo sign. He goes, well, I got another one for you. He said, I was able to rescue another famous landmark from uh, days gone by. Another Mexican restaurant long gone, which was Felix, Felix Mexican Restaurant. They were famous for that crazy... uh, that cheese dip, they had the Felix Queso. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> it was a, a vein clogger. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that one. So, but that doesn't exist anymore either. Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately, they folded their tent. So, where do you like to, to get Mexican
1: food in Houston then? Oh, there's a very interesting spot run by Levi Good. And now, Levi Good got his foot in the uh, restaurant game thanks to his dad, Jim Good. Who started with uh, Good and Company Barbecue, uh. and uh, he handed the torch to his son Levi, and then that became Barbecue Number Two, and then it was uh, Good and Company Seafood, and most recently there's now a Good and Good and Company Tex-Mex Kitchen, and it is stunning,
2: absolutely delightful. Oh, I gotta check that. I usually I go to uh, NIFA's on Navigation or Armando's. You ever go to those? Oh, man, now
1: you're making me hungry. <laughs> Those are great, great spots there.
0: Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's Teen Dance Ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, The Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out.
2: What was Bo Diddley like? Ah, oh, man.
1: There's a cornerstone, if there ever was one. Yeah. He and I became friends way back in the day. In fact, uh, it was pointed out recently, a friend of mine asked me to autograph a ticket, a ticket stub from one of the first ZZ Top shows where we were hired to be the backing band for Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. Wow. And from those uh, humble beginnings, that started a friendship that lasted through through the years. In fact, it was it was way back then. This must have been as early as 71, 72. And I was asking Bo about one of those strange Gretsch guitar designs that uh, Gretsch had done for him. And he was really enamored with the fact I knew about him. And I said, a lot of folks are quite familiar with your famous rectangle-shaped instrument. Right. He said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, that, that's my calling card. He said, I'm surprised that you know about the other ones. And uh, in unexpected fashion, he said, you know, I've still got it. And he said, I don't play it much. If you'd you'd like it, I'd like you to have it, which I gladly accepted. And uh, fast forward four decades, we were wrapping up the ZZ Top record entitled Rhythmine. And the engineers, Mr. Joe Hardy and Mr. GLG Main Moon, they said, you know, we've only got a couple more lead tracks to fill out. Do you have a guitar that we haven't used that might give us another different kind of a sound? And I said, well, we could go have a look. And uh, we opened up the doors to the vault and there in the dark corner, they pointed to a a little dusty gray case. And they said, now, what's that one back in the back? It was that very guitar that Bo Diddley had given to me years before. And when the case opened up, their eyes got wide as plates. And they said, gee, what is this thing? (laughs) crazy. And we, it was still in tune. It hadn't been touched in years. And we started using it on gigs. And I got a... Now, at this time, this must have been uh, early 90s. And I got a phone call from Mike Lewis, who was the head of Fender Fender Guitars, who had just recently taken on the, the Gretsch guitar line. They licensed it from Fred Gretsch. And Mike uh, was very curious. He said, I've seen photographs... Of you playing a rather unusually shaped instrument, but it has uh, it has the Gretsch logo up in the headstock, mm. and I grinned. I said, "Oh yeah," I said, uh, "It's uh, it was a one-off that was that was made back in the early '60s. It was was one of Bo Diddley's, and uh, he actually Mike got on a plane and came out to Los Angeles, and uh, we unveiled it." once again and uh, he lost his mind he said this is the coolest thing Uh, he said do you mind if we uh, have a closer look and after a thorough inspection they decided to to reintroduce it as a reissue Gretsch guitar now called the billy bow it was quite exciting Uh, Bo diddley and i both were were being paid to let them dust this thing off
2: (laughs) it's amazing i only got to see him once Maybe, I mean, I think it was probably 2006. I got to see him at the Paramount, and then he passed on maybe two years later or something.
1: Do you know he he carried the torch on right to the right to the end. He he lost no stamina. He was full of energy. It might be worth noting that uh, many of the uh, filmed excursions that uh, took Bo Diddley in front of the camera uh, are still being uh, being posted. Uh, YouTube carries them. It's really amazing. And some of the great highlights is when uh, Bo Diddley started with with his original trio, which was Bo Diddley on guitar, Clifton James on snare drum,
2: and Jerome Green on maracas. That was it. That was made up the band. Well, I've seen some of his TV appearances, and those are on YouTube, and those are just out of sight. You know, he's like dancing and walking at this you know starts off up on this <laughs> mountain you know and kind of like walks down the mountain and he's doing his legs back and forth the whole time and it's just just what a performer yeah the shimmy
1: and shake that he could pull off while still holding the holding the backbeat it's yeah. rather amazing i think you might be referring to the appearance he he was included on that thing called the tammy show TV. yeah 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 the tammy show right oh man now, that in itself is is uh, an
2: eye-opener. You know, the Rolling Stones played, uh, James Brown. And then he played on um, Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan, he played the wrong song, or played an extra song or something, and Ed Sullivan said he would never be on TV again. I guess that didn't last. Yeah, I
1: think, was it the wrong song, or I think he extended his stay, and, you know, I mean, he was just... It was just rambunctious guy. He was giving it, yeah. his,
2: giving it his all. Well, he had a song called Bo Diddley, and they held up a sign that says Bo Diddley. And so he played that song. You yeah. Know. <laughs> He's like, he, he didn't know.
1: One of my favorite photographs I hold in Treasure is a picture of me sitting at the table with Bo Diddley surrounded by a White Castle hamburger and malted milk sacks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Where was that?
1: we were somewhere out West and uh, gosh, I remember it was, it was, it was quite cold and I'd gone to the airport and uh, he said, White Castle. He said, pull in. I said, you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. Pull in.
2: So that, that started it. (laughs) Another thing I want to ask you about was, um, you know, just a simple thing. Like where do, where do songs come from for you? You know, I, I read a little bit about your last solo record and how that came about. And it sounded like, Matt Sorum invited you out to look at a studio and then you just stayed and made an album. So does that mean the songs were all written there? Did you write them on the spot? Did you bring stuff in? Yeah, I had worked
1: with the engineer of uh, great talent, Mr. Mike Fiorentino, back in Nashville. Yeah, We had had peeled the onion on a couple of starter pieces that uh, were seemingly gaining traction. But uh, once we realized we had arrived in Joshua Tree with nothing more than, uh, you know, just two little uh, tidbits. It was incumbent to light the fuse and let the energies come from the ethos. Right. And it it just kind of, like so many things, you you wait for the moment, and uh, if something shows up, you grab it and see what you can make out of it. Uh, But then again, as you know, when we're surrounded with uh, our friends that we enjoy making loud noise with, Some of these creative moments, they seem to start erupting. And once the flow starts unfolding, it becomes a real challenge to keep up with it. I tend to just remain vigilant. Uh, It's not a chore. It's a challenge. Right. And uh, you could be driving down a lonesome highway and something pops into your mind or you hear maybe you're listening to a radio uh, broadcast and... Whatever the whatever that crucial element is that ignites that creative juice, uh, I've learned to uh, carry pencil and paper and and pull over on the side and,
2: and jot it down. Yeah, stop everything. Yep, it's time. Yeah, you got to take advantage of that when uh, when it comes to you. Yeah, I look for those. I wait around for them. <laughs> I try to bring them on. I do too. You gotta you gotta be patient. <laughs> yeah, you never know where. That's the thing with songwriting is whenever it's time to write a song and you feel that kind of pressure it's like i try to remember okay okay how did i do this before and how did i get there and the thing is i i never knew how i got there you know and you never can consciously get back to that place it just it will appear to you when it's ready to you know
1: there's a big difference when um, when you want to to create something. Uh, as opposed to when you're expected to create something. Right, right. Big, big difference. Uh, When the pressure is on, it seems like the lights tend to go dim. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, when least expected, you run for the uh, scrap of paper and a pen and, uh, you know, you 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 put that lightning in a bottle. Muddy Waters, you know, we toured with Muddy Waters way back in the early 80s. I didn't know that. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, uh, he said, I was a young man. And he said, uh, he said, seems like a new song would would land in my lap almost every day. And now he said, decades later, he said, I've really got to remain open just in case that same energy comes my
2: way. Right. Yeah, that's cool to hear. I know you're a fan of the 13th floor elevators. I guess that's something we have in common when I was. Sixteen, I decided I'd, I'd heard, I kept hearing about this, this band that coined the term psychedelic and the singer was rumored to have gone insane and that the band was broken up because of a drug bust and you know I just kept hearing these little, these little tidbits that got me really interested but there was nowhere to get those records at the time that I, that I knew of, I had to like dig and dig until I, I went to Bill's Records in Dallas and they had a 13th floor elevator record that won, below of the Woods. So that was my first one. Wow! And then later, I got got the Inter Sanctum in Austin had had their record, so I would get those. But I don't know. Where did you Where did you first hear the Elevators? There was a club in Houston.
1: It was a, a converted church called La Maison, and the Elevators. They were just starting to emerge. The first single, "You're Gonna Miss Me." Yeah, that first single really lit the fuse for those guys. They were. They were ready to... uh, What's a great single. Oh, yeah, to this day. And then fortunately, there was a house in Houston, a grand mansion that unfortunately had been uh, encumbered by the construction of an entry ramp to a new freeway that was being constructed. And Mm. eminent domain left them in the shadows of this high overpass. (laughs) <laughs> and so the family that had taken residence there for years, they decided to abandon ship. They moved out, and the structure was still there. And then a developer came along and and turned it in to uh, kind of makeshift apartments. And at that time, following the lead of the 13th floor elevators, uh, I founded the group called the Moving Sidewalks. Someone said, "Yeah, that how did that come about?" I said, "Well, we we had this fixation." with the elevators and I said, right. elevators go up, moving sidewalks, go forward. I said, let's take, so we wound up occupying, uh, different domiciles within the same residence there at the Louisiana house. That's, it, it got this nickname, the, the Louisiana house. Right. And, uh, uh, earlier we were speaking about the restaurants of, uh, featuring Mexican cuisine that are long by the wayside. On many occasions we found ourselves, uh, enjoying, uh, a uh, fine fare with the elevators at, at Felix. <laughs> they had a very affordable uh, combination plate, and <laughs> it was a grand gathering. But yeah, first started hanging out uh, at La Maison just in total awe of what they were
2: delivering. The elevators were fierce. Yeah, amazing voice. I've seen video of you guys playing together, but did you ever record anything with them or, or write anything with them?
1: Yes. In the not-so-distant past, Darren Hall, who took over management of Rocky, he and I made uh, a rather fast friendship. He had come to understand my undying admiration of Rocky's work from from the earliest days up to the more recent, I guess I call it, when he crawled from the wreckage and began making, uh, making himself known again. I wrote a couple of things. There are a couple of tracks that were done, they're completed songs, the arrangements were together, they're they're still a bit rough but I think they could be developed. And out of courtesy to this ongoing friendship, we recently threw our hat in the ring and did a version of I Got Levitation. Mm. And we were out in California and uh, Rocky came by and he was beaming and he said he said ah he said he said, "I thought I was the only one that could get up that high at, at the end of the song." And I said, "Well,
2: believe me, it took me several tries to even try and get there." <laughs> right. Yeah. But nothing you nothing you wrote with him ever came out. Is that what you're saying?
1: Nothing's been released just yet. Uh, you may know the name of uh, Bill Bentley may be recognizable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh
1: huh. Bill being with Warner Brothers for many many years, also a human, right. native Houstonian. And to this day, a, a stalwart supporter and follower of everything, everything Elevators, I guess you'd say. Right. He was behind uh, the launch of the earlier tribute to the Elevators. at work, I think it was entitled, uh, When the Pyramid Meets the Eye. I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, that, you had a song on there. Yeah, Yeah, that, that was really an interesting uh, combination piece. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe it's time to dust that stuff off. Rocky may be gone, but his legacy, <laughs> it may be as strong as ever. Well, I'm good. <laughs> you yeah. got anything else? Oh, you've got me. You got me energized and excited. As I mentioned earlier, it looks like we'll be uh, looking forward to being able to hit the road April, uh, no later than May. And uh, in the meantime, if we have our chance to cross paths we'll have to do it uh maybe a day may, maybe a week of uh just kind of tiptoeing around some of these mexican uh restaurants you know, <laughs> that we still want all right still
2: want to haunt we'll have to do a tasting do, do a taste test i am in i am in bro. all right <laughs> no but i hope to get to catch you guys out there on the road this year and Yeah, I hope we do get to cross paths.
1: Come on out and uh, let's look forward to, uh, I'm going to use that word again, we got to collide. (laughs) Take it it further. I'm
0: down. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks so much to Britt Daniel and Billy Gibbons for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platforms and social media channels. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.